iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. All right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho. You guys doing all right tonight? How are we doing tonight? Right side of the theater here. How are we doing? All right. All right. Good. Good. I like it. No, that's it. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going. Let it build. Let it build. That's natural. Good, good, good. Awesome. I like that. Well, welcome. We're very excited, uh, as we are every night. Uh, I'm pretty sure you guys are ready to have a great time, but I just want to confirm, are you ready to have a great time? Yes? Okay, good. Just want to make sure. We don't want to move forward if we're not solid on that. Now, like I said, it's Tribeca season. Uh, it's probably our favorite time of the year. And what we do every single year, we team up with some great people over at a place called IndieWire. And uh, right now, before the event, I'd like to bring out a guest from IndieWire to tell you what they're all about and kind of talk to you guys for a second. So please make them feel welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, Basil from IndieWire. Thanks a lot. So uh, every year, as Matt said, uh, IndieWire partners with Tribeca and with the Applestore Soho. We want to uh, give a big fa uh, thanks to Applestore Soho uh, to do these talks. Uh, IndieWire, for those of you that don't know, is a website, IndieWire.com, that, um, that covers independent film, film festivals, filmmakers, uh, the business. Check it out. Um, it publishes every day, virtually, I mean, absolutely every day. Um, we want you to check it out. Uh, we'll be running uh, other things throughout Tribeca for the rest of the festival and beyond. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Dana Harris, editor-in-chief of IndieWire, and tonight's guest, director James Whitby, and the cast of Rid of Me. Y'all have fans. Okay, hi everybody. Dana Harris here, Editor-in-Chief of IndieWire, and I'm going to do my best to introduce everybody uh, with their proper names. Okay, here we go. Uh, here we have James Westby, the director and producer of Rid of, Rid of Me. Uh, we have Katie O'Grady, the star and producer of uh, Rid of Me. And then we have, let's see, Olivia Herm, uh, or, or, excuse me, Oriana Herman, who portrays Trudy. Uh, we have, um, oh gosh, uh, John, John Kaiser, who plays uh, frat, frat boy extraordinaire Mitch. Um, we, ha we have uh, Julie Vey, who plays uh, Lacey. We have um, Mel with the character Melinda. Melinda. Thank you. And uh, we also have uh, Jason Wells, composer. And last but not least, um, Emily Gallish, who plays Alice. Okay. So um, before we get started, I kind of want to just kind of set the scene here. Tell us a little bit about what the production of this was like in terms of when you guys started and what got this started. What, what, was, the, what was the germ of the idea and how did it get developed? Okay, well, I, um, I think of myself as a pretty awkward person and a lot of, a lot of uh, embarrassingly funny things have happened to me over the years and I wanted to make a character with you know, a, a trajectory through a movie where she just goes through the worst things possible and then there's somewhat of a release after that. But this production was made uh, very bare bones with about five crew members and a huge cast, but a really tiny crew. And we filmed it like the a documentary. Crew was five? Five, yeah. Yes. That's, that's, uh, that's really small. <laughs> I mean, a lot of cinematographers will hate me for this, but I really believe in the idea of shooting HD movies with uh, virtually no lighting. And that's what I shot this myself. And uh, the aesthetic of what we were doing just kind of, you know, uh, informed the movie. And uh, it just became its own thing. 
So how long, um, how long was the production? Was the actual... Uh, it was about 20 days. And then, and then I edited for almost two years. Just trying to get time, you know, finding time to be able to get it edited and just... Yes, and being, you know, really anal and looking at every scrap of footage, for sure. Okay. And uh, Katie, in terms of, this is your first time to produce. Um, why, did, why did you produce this? Why did you want to pr- be the producer on this? Or did you want to be the producer on this? Oh, no, no, I, I did want to produce this. I had been following James' work. Um, we both live in Portland, Oregon, and I was cast as an actor in the auteur. And uh, I just thought, this guy is, you know, something I want to be part of. Something's happening here, and it's different. And so I actually got my hands on rid of me. Well, on vacation, I read it, and I called him up, and I said, you know, you have to make this. But it really took me a while to convince him, because I said, I want to produce it, I'll find the money, I'll do it, but I want to play Maris. And that wasn't something that he... You she know, was too pretty. <laughs> well, Maris, Maris has different qualities than I do, and um, so I had to kind of go to bat for the project first, and then it came with some strings attached. And then I dyed my hair, and I said, please, please, let me, let me, you know, let me do this. And I basically set up an office and walked him into it, and... Um, he was easily persuaded at that point that we could make this happen. That and we now, could... now she's my girlfriend. And now we make out. <laughs> That's how it gets done. <laughs> well, actually, you're, um, you're, you are fairly unrecognizable uh, in terms of what that character is. I mean, not, it's not, obviously it's the brown hair, it's long hair, but you, I mean, that uh, Maris looks like she's about to have the world swallow her up. And it's like, you know, how, you know what, what did you have to do to make that transformation? Well, he's right in that a lot of this is based on his life and him. So it was very easy to draw from someone. Um, a lot of the way that she walks in, into a room and sees life um, physically was from actually just knowing James as a friend. We were friends at the time. But I'm, I'm very, I was very intrigued at the time of um, why somebody is going down a path that they don't belong on. And they're just so insistent on staying on it and perfecting it. Um, because clearly when she finds the right path and... Uh, finds people who actually love her just for her, she um, discovers a whole new life and she's happy and content. So that really intrigued me about the piece. And I think that there was something really to be said for me personally at that time. And why do we go down this path when this other path is waiting for us? So, but uh, so much more of it spoke to me as well. The voice that, you know, sort of the, the everybody seeking to not be that person alone in a room, which I know no matter what you look like and feel like everybody has felt, just doesn't matter who you are. I actually wanted to ask uh, John this. In terms of, you know, your character, Mitch, who is obviously like this kind of you know, go-go frat boy type, you know, it's like what, do, what was his attraction to Maris? Was it just the fact that she was, she was so mousy, she was so malleable? Yeah, well, why did you, you lose me so much? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's a really good question to ask. I think that hasn't been asked yet. And I think that's what's so great about creating backstory when you've got a script and you have to do some of your homework. And I think what I sort of took that perspective of, you know, we're coming from California with a completely different life aside from our friends. And I think that people in general have an inherent ability to adapt themselves in the environment they've either been in or becoming in. And um, I think sort of how I took it was, there was a sense of realness that we shared before we even got back to Laurelwood in the film, uh, but that sort of got broken apart by circumstance, environment, behavioral shifts in both personalities. Um, but there, I think there is a likability that hopefully people will be able to see in the film. There's a little, you know, at the very beginning, there's a sense of, of playfulness back and forth and trying to... Um, Play, by playfulness, do you mean they have great sex? Yes. Yeah. But, but, but in, in, Isn't that why he loves her? 
it's just the tail. I'm, I'm all about the tail, apparently. But um, no, it's, it really was sort of an insertion of, of, of really great times and into an environment where there's all other buddies you've known for so long. And, um, and you're so torn. Y yeah, and thank you for saying that. I think I, think I was mentioning something last night. Pe people are in environments in real life where whether on paper they look really good or you know in person people wonder if they're really right for each other but behind closed doors there was something i really felt when we started shooting that there was a connectivity between maris and mitch no i think i, th I think that's true too but it's just like it was just so obvious as soon as he was back in his you know native habitat right that it was just like this is so not going to work right yeah. yeah and in terms of like and for that matter too so you know Mar okay maris finds this path in in portland that makes her feel like she's kind of finding who she is i mean for the backstory that you were writing about this, or you know, literally or figuratively, who was she before this? I mean, it's like how had she, was she just somebody who was just like always trying to find somewhere to fit in, in terms of what was being presented to her, rather than trying to figure it out for herself. Well, I think for me, it was that um, like like John said that they had had some truth, some sort of truth and connection, and I, I envisioned that he, you know we had some some real depth. When we are from our times in California, and then we moved home, and and again, what he said about environment enveloping somebody, and you know, when you get around someone that you don't feel comfortable, and this is me for sure, I make a bigger ass of myself minute by minute. The more I know that I'm not someone does not want to be talking to me, so she just starts to just tumble and then obsess and tumble and obsess and then basically suffocate herself and everybody around her. <laughs> well, actually, and I'm going to address this to the the mean girls of the piece. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, how do, how do you guys, I mean, it's, and I have to say something about the setting in terms of Portland. I have to, you know, I would think that in terms of what I think a lot of people's image of Portland is, is like, it's like the kind of the, the alternative folks would seem to be the norm and the mean girls would seem to be kind of the exception. I mean, it's like, I mean, that, well, how did you feel like, what, what, what kind of role did you think your characters had in that world? I mean, it's just like, do you feel like they were the, they were threatened by the kind of the oh, landscape? Oh, mean girls they're never threatened because we are an exception. We are exceptional. And the fact that Mitchie was coming home, coming back, you know, to the nest and finally had his fun and married his cute little friend and had his moment. Now he's coming back to realization this is where he needs to be. And as uncomfortable as that was <laughs> treating Katie that way, off, off screen, on screen, it was kind of fun. <laughs> it was, it's, it's strange because I know it happens to everyone, you, usually in middle school, that you, you find your clique, regardless if it's the cool girls or the stoners or the, you know, the jocks, but the jocks and the cool girls always seem to get together. And that was our, that was our foundation and our group and our belief, you know, from death to us part as far as our, all of us are concerned. And when he went away, it was kind of like, oh, we heard he went away, but we heard nothing about you. Hmm. <laughs> Dusty didn't mean too much about you, but now he's home and we'll take care of him. Thanks so much. So it was, um, it's, it's fun to play. It's hard to play off screen because I felt so bad about treating her that way. But um, No, she didn't. I know. <laughs> it was fun, though. It was fun being mean. I had fun because my mean girl, I was actually the nice mean girl. Sorry, you're just downright mean. But I was the nice but I look mean good girl. Being mean. And I really <laughs> had a heart. Like I loved Maris. I welcomed her into my town and my home and I saw potential in Maris. Like I wanted to help her, save her, and help her to become as perfect 
an exceptional but as what the it, rest but, of yeah, us. Yeah, but what it comes, it, clearly, but as except, we want you to be as exceptional yeah. as I mean, we want everyone we to experience life in perfection, so we want okay. to spread that perfection to everyone, don't we but, all? But in reality, <laughs> in reality, nobody, actually nobody can be us anymore, so that's why she had to go. Well, actually, she um, stabbed me in the back, so this nice girl became They're not quite a over their roles mean. just yet. I was going to say. <laughs> not just yet. I was going to say. And actually, that kind of goes into my next question, which would explain why, Jason, it, was it intentional that you had sort of horror music coming in every time that you were seeing these, these friends? Uh, it was intentional. Um, when James and I first started on the project, which was almost two years ago, uh, he and I are, are uh, definitely soulmates in terms of being film geeks, and uh, one of the films he kept referencing is The Shining. And uh, if you look at the, the camera work in Rid of Me, a lot of the, the camera moves, the push-ins and whatnot are very much like The Shining, and we wanted to create sort of a, a soundscape that uh, played very much like a horror film, because I think that Maris's situation was quite horrific. It's missing the axe murder sequences, uh, of course, but it is sort of like, uh, it's like a social horror film for her, and, and as she uh, progresses into despair, and uh, with the arrival of uh, Storm Large in the movie, you know, her adversary almost, you know, I mean, she's so, so defeated and trapped, and there is something very monstrous taking place uh, with these two so fine ladies here. It seems like at that moment, there's like a, the, the mean girls, the mean guys, actually do have, like, they aren't going out to, they, they weren't, like, determining that they were going to, you know, attack you from the get-go. They really were trying to welcome you. You know, they really were trying to, you know, create something nice, but it just goes south so fast. Yeah, no, I know. They, they, they don't quite mean to, but at the same time, you know, the minute she walks in and there's that sign that says, Welcome Home, Mitch. You know, not Welcome Home, Mitch and Maris, or, you know, and just that stare that that boils you, that you know, you're talking to somebody and they've got a smile, but you know underneath they just want to smack you. It's hard. So, um, and so, uh, Oriana and Emily, talk to me a little bit about how you guys saw this in terms of, like, how did, you, how did you see the character of Maris in terms of, did you see her as somebody who was like a, you know, a friend or someone who just needed saving? <laughs> well, um, I, I find uh, our kind of world of character in this film is everyone that doesn't belong in the world of Mitch and their friends. Um, so I feel like um, everyone from, from Jeremy Bunquist at the record store and Freak Girl and Alice, I mean, these are, these are people that we, we didn't find a place in, in traditional society ways of functioning. So we, we created our own. And, and Maris, to me, you, you see that in someone else. You see that you see someone that that doesn't feel comfortable in in potentially their own skin or or whatever skin they're trying to put on, and so there's there's kind of an element of like I know that, I know you, and I love you for it. Yeah, uh, the characters that we played were very liberating, and it was a good it was a good tool to get Maris out of her shell. And uh, I mean, there's nothing more pure and free than just flipping off cars everywhere, and you know. <laughs> Who, we didn't care. We didn't care about any of the the context that the, uh, the the preppy crew kind of cared about. We just we just wanted to have a good time, and uh, I think that helped helped uh, Maris's character a lot. So, and um, 
and t talk to me a little bit about uh, in terms of when you were actually so you actually finished shooting two years uh, of editing. When were you done? Or for that matter, how did you know you were done? It was hard. And the, uh, one of the things when you mentioned that the, the, they do kind of welcome her, I just watching that clip, now I realize how much uh, kind of finessing of the tone of them toward her was. In the script, it was probably a little bit more over the top. And they probably you know, were kind of mean in a real horror movie kind of way. But it was a matter of trimming it back. And th that scene also is just a good example of having taken in like three scenes and overlapped them, overlapping them onto themselves. Sometimes when a scene would play a little bit too long, uh, I would kind of just chop it in half and advance to the next scene and then, and it just started working to sort of flash back to, uh, you know, key moments in their conversation rather than, rather than, you know, what I'd written all the way through. And I, I think that's probably why I spent so much time editing is because a lot of that kept happening and you know, when, the, when, it, when it felt done, then I stopped and we submitted it to Tribeca. Um, and in terms of, uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to get into specifics on the budget, but like how, how low are we talking about here? Like, like a general... Kmart low. Low, low prices at Kmart. <laughs> yeah, we, got, we essentially didn't have a camera crew. It was just me and Derek, who I just, there he is right there, Derek Estes. Uh, who is my script supervisor and script gaffer? Script supervisor <laughs> and, and gaffer, which is that, and that pizza delivery boy. That hyphenation has never been made, I don't think, until Derek Estes. Uh, but um, everybody jumped in. I mean, literally, we had meetings, and like somebody would say, "We need a location," and our sound guy would just be like, "I got one. We'll we'll throw that in." And we would have uh, somebody wouldn't you know craft service had. You know, emergency tooth operation. So we filled up the back of my truck, opened it up, craft, craft service. You know, everybody pitched in. It was really like a family. It was really a cool experience for that reason. But actual micro budget, I would say. Is um, how different is that de is from your uh, previous uh, films? I mean, has that, have they all been on that kind of basis? Or yeah, but but you, now you there really literally is no excuse for not making a movie. When I started, like in around '92, I really started making feature films. And you know Gregor Rocky's films and uh, all those movies at Sundance in 1992 were coming out, and there were some you know and slacker movies that were very low budget and actually got into theaters. So that was part of the world that inspired me. But back then you kind of had to spend at least fifteen thousand dollars on a movie um, to pay for the film stock and the work print and the release print and all that stuff, which doesn't exist now. At least uh, at least fifteen thousand. Yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, but uh, I'm, I guess I'm saying that the, the apparatus to capture the image, including film stock and the camera, was the most expensive part. Now it's the cheapest part. And we were, you know, we were, we were very proud um, to have paid everybody. I mean, you know, we did pay everybody, and it wasn't their full day rate. But because James carries such a history of um, interesting filmmaking, we were able to get really incredible professional people, incredible actors that we didn't deserve to work for lower rates and to help out. So that's sort of something that, as a producer, was very easy for me. Doors opened a lot quicker when I knocked because of James. Well, actually, I mean, um, you've been based in Oregon for how long? Uh, from the Northwest forever, but yeah. Uh, yeah, since the early 90s. Well, actually, talk to me. Uh, I'm really kind of curious about this. Talk, and anybody can address this. Talk to me a little bit about what the, um, what the Pacific Northwest film scene is like. I mean, right now, obviously, we have Portlandia, 
on TV, which is, I think, doing pretty well. And I think you've, you've had a role in Portl Portlandia, too, yeah. Put a bird on it. Yeah. And um, so t what is it like there now? What is, you know, how is it, is, you feel like it's growing? Do you feel like it's... Yeah, definitely it's growing. And a lot of the actors here can probably speak to that uh, better than I can, although I'm a fr friends with a lot of the filmmakers. But there is a, a gr group of uh, wonderful movie makers, um, Matt McCormick and uh, Andy Bluebaugh and people like that. Nisha Weebly. Misha Webley. Whose new project? The, those guys have probably broken out more than anybody else, but um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a good community of people that you know don't raise ridiculous amounts of money, you know, to make a you know a movie that uh, they're sick of by the time they've raised the money. <laughs> and I was just going to add, in, in terms of Portland, Oregon, if anyone's ever been or who haven't been, what I sort of related to is it does look in a lot of ways any town USA. There's you know, you're an hour from the beach, you're an hour from a mountain, you're three hours from the central desert, and so there's so many opportunities to shoot, so many location and choices, uh, and you go down any street in Portland, it looks like it could be Boston, Chicago, anywhere. Um, but there's, I just think there's, a, in my opinion, I think there's a lot stronger pulse happening over the last year and a half, and I think it's just gonna get stronger and stronger, which is great. It's such an ideal city to shoot, and uh, with the tax incentives, it's, it's just gonna get better and better. What um, is it in terms of uh, production? Are it, how savvy is uh, is Portland about production at this point? In terms of, I mean, because savvy can be good or bad. I mean, it's like the good side of it is if they're naive, you can be able to do more things without permits. You can kind of, you know, sneak in, maybe get people to let you know, let them use your house or something. Um, is that what, what like what level of the sophistication in in the area now? Um, people aren't going to start mowing their lawn if you're shooting outside, like I've heard that they do in Los Angeles. Yes, they do. Um, uh, yeah, so totally, completely naive, I would say. The Unless general, you're filming at a garden. Populace. We had that was the hardest permit to get was the yeah. community well, it, it garden. Wasn't, it wasn't worth getting because it wasn't. You know. But we, but everybody else with in, in terms of permits because I was out hustling for those and locations and whatnot. Just doors again open and it's very easy in Portland. James and I often would just pick do pickup shots. He'd grab his camera. We'd run out on the street and get shots. We knocked on a door. We said, "Can we film here next week?" She said, "Come on in." I mean, it's it's very. And made us lemonade. Yeah. And lemonade. Yeah, she made the, the film. There's the film commission and boards there are incredible about pushing things through, about being helpful. They're really dedicated to filmmakers right now. That's awesome. Well, listen, I'd like to open up uh, the audience for questions if we have any. I've got more questions if you don't. But anybody in the audience have anything they'd like to ask? Oh, hi. <laughs> um, first of all, I can't get the film out of my head. It's been with me all day after seeing it last night, and. Uh, I just have a specific question about the Cambodian rock music choice. Um, I can't get that out of my head either. I, I'm kind of a fan now. And yeah. are you a fan? And how did you come up with that choice? And it, it seems to fit Maris perfect. That's an interesting question. Um, Morgan Hobart, who is a really good friend of mine and plays the love interest near the end of the film in the third act, uh, he and I worked at a video store together for about four years. And he, this is a, an example of real life coming into a you know piece of fiction, but. He um, pretty much explained to me this Cambodian rock CD that had come out, kind of bootleg, of all these bands that had most likely been killed by the Khmer Rouge. Um, and, but it's this Western-influenced, amazing uh, music. And um, so that was like him telling me that story. He just kind of had to play the part, even though he was our sound recordist. It was really funny watching him uh, perform and listen to the sound outside. And I'd have to kick him out of his out of his sound recordist mode and <laughs> remind him that he was an actor. 
but he's funny, really good. But yeah, that was the impetus for that, and I, I just like the music a lot. And if you have any idea what they're singing, would you just let us know? Because we just, we came up with Duncan, Where's Your Balls? And that was about the only thing we could think of. When, when they <laughs> I don't were know what they're thinking. saying. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? For all the actors over there, um, how was this like as actor? I'm an actor too. Um, how was it like f fitting into the role? When you forgot the script and take a look at it, how was it adjusting to the whole, getting yourself prepared emotionally and getting into the world? How was that process? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. If, if I think what really helped us in the beginning is one of our first meetings together in, as just the clique, as just the group with, without James and without lights around or anything like that, we all sat around the table at an empty house, and we started kind of introducing each other to one another, and then changing our names and dressing each other as the script would couple us up, and just kind of hung out, had, had lots of hurry up and waiting, which is okay, but during that time, you get to know each other and have kind of inside jokes, or oh, we should do this during this, this, um, this take, or it wouldn't be funny if, okay. But it was so spontaneous and so warm inside of our clique, that when Maris, when Katie did come actually in, you, you had to stop yourself and think, okay, we're actually filming, but let's just, she's back. It, it, just, it, felt, it felt so good because of the, the, the generous sense of humor and the, gen, you know, the, the real friendship that we got along so well that it kind of poured over naturally into treating her badly and getting him back, so. And I would just, I would just quickly add to that, that the one thing that I felt was really great and really opportunistic to answer your question um, was how freeing James was as a director. What consistently, every single day we shot, we, we read to Paige and then James would voluntarily ask so many of the actors, what do you want to do now? Let's shoot it. Do you have an idea for this? What are your thoughts on that? And then if you had something to add, whether I would say whether you agree with it or not, he shot it. Yeah. And that's why, I don't know if that's some of the reasons why you had so much time to edit, because there was so much footage that he was so giving and free to allow us to just explore. And sometimes he'd be shooting, and you wouldn't know he's shooting, and we'd still be, we'll still be carrying on. So but he's it, also it, a writer, so when you're working with a writer like James and you're shooting something, when you get really talented actors like this, they'll, still, they'll be in the moment, they'll stay in the moment in character, but James will throw a line because he's working on editing already. He'll throw a line and you, you know, at you and you, 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 know, you incorporate it immediately. So. I'd like yeah. to add to that what was so wonderful working with James is it's so, if you're an actor, you'll understand this. It's so liberating when you get to work with a director who truly, sincerely respects actors and the process and what we're going through. And he just created a really safe, fun place to play. And I think for actors, sometimes we forget that's why we decided to be actors to begin with, because it's fun. Not because we're gonna buy a mansion in Beverly Hills, but because it's fun. And James brings the fun into it. And that's what I really appreciated. So thank you, James. Do we have another question from the audience?
Yes. Did you leave anything on the floor when you're putting the film together? Was there scenes or something that was there and you wish you had it in the film, but there wasn't enough room? Yes, that's a great question. Could you repeat the question? It was just kind of hard to hear. Uh, he was wondering if there was a, like a major scene left on the, edit, the figurative editing floor, editing room floor, um, which is my kitchen. <laughs> um, yes, there was a whole subplot about uh, Katie's character, Maris, uh, obsessing uh, over the yearbook of her husband, which she steals from the local, their local high school. And um, it was a complete, I mean, it was a big sequence of her going to Mitch's high school and, and getting scowled at by the librarian and stealing his yearbook. And there were con various scenes throughout the film of her obsessing over the, over the yearbook. But that was just cut out because it was too long and it's, it was its own little movie. Yeah. That's why God made DVD extras. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And it would function maybe as its own little short film or something. But yeah, I'm glad that it's not there, but I still like that material. Um, I'm going to steal a moment to ask a question to, uh, that I forgot to ask earlier, which is um, the opening scene of the movie. Talk about horror movies. Mm -hmm. um, what, do you, what do you mean? Uh. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm, this sounds coy. I don't want to spoil this for anybody who hasn't seen it. If you've seen it, you know, definitely know what I'm talking about. How did that, how was that in mind as the, as the opening scene? How did that come to be the opening scene? Well, it definitely gets a response, you know. Um, it became sort of a Katie actually suggested it when we were edit when I was editing uh it used to be more linear um but now it's at the very beginning and it starts off with a bang it seemed I mean there was just that generally speaking it seemed like something really huge to start out on that would w make you wonder immediately who these people are and why this horrible thing has happened in the supermarket uh, but it also kind of works in the way of kind of gaining, uh, not, maybe not sympathy, but gaining understanding. And yes, sympathy of the character, you know, after she's done something really horrible right at the get-go. And, the, you know, I mean, the flash-forward, flashback is a pretty big staple in, in movies. And uh, it, it just seemed to work the best there. That was a scene that we talked about a lot because, you know, it's a, for me, it was very nerve-wracking, and my mother was definitely against it and not, not interested in me being part of that. <laughs> she, must have, yeah, she must have been absolutely horrified. Yeah, not anymore, now that she's seen it. Because, you know, you, you stick with it, and you're like, okay, I'm with it. Because people do things that are dark when they're in their darkest times. But um, what I think, for me, when I, when I, the reason I thought that it would work best at the beginning was because James' voice is so specific, and that is such a strong... Um, statement from him of what this particular character is going through that I thought that it would be amazing to see that right at the beginning so that you knew that ev nothing was safe in this movie. And my mom saw the scene last night and she loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so she says. I have to say my mom liked it too. She was like, yeah! Power to the female, was, right? Uh, yeah! I was like, I thought my mom was going to be like, oh. But she was like, yeah! Go Maris! <laughs> So the market for, for this film is 60 women in their 60s. 50s. Women oh, in their sorry, 50s. Ma I didn't mean, my mom was over there. 51. I didn't mean to out her as... Uh... Two more questions. Who's going to take them? This one's for James. Um, what was your writing process for this film? And how long did that take you to complete the script? Uh, the script was... At my, my last film, feature film, The Auteur, played here in 2008. And this, Rid of Me, was a script that I actually wrote uh, well before that. 
uh, in 2003, which I think I just said. Um, and I, I always intentioned it, it was intended to be like a, you know, a bigger budget sort of independent film. Uh, but then I realized that it's much more fun to just, you know, make it, just start making the film on a smaller scale and it, it worked out for the best. I don't think I answered your question. How did you write it, though? She want, and I'm curious about I never oh, really asked and a, you. And, a, and actually on that, if, if you wrote it in 2003, how much evolution did it have to go through when you actually started thinking, okay, I'm going to make this now? Well, it, it, strangely enough, is a period piece set in 2002. It's never referenced in the film at all, except for a few little things like that oversized monitor uh, on that PC that they're giving him as a gift. Um, but it just, as I was editing, it just editing perhaps the script, but I can't even remember because it, for me, it's writing and directing and editing and now shooting kind of all becomes the same process. Um, but the script itself was probably pretty, a lot more straightforward than the film. And uh, I was living in that neighborhood, uh, Multnomah Village, where we shot it as a small town uh, in Oregon. And um, did I answer the question? The, I know her, so I'm distracted by the fact that I know her. <laughs> okay, we got time for one more question. Anybody? Over there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to know, because it, I had thought it might have been a woman who wrote this script. And so I wanted to know if any of the um, female actresses felt a need to say, I don't know if I would say that, or change... She wanted to know if any of the female actresses would say, oh, I can't really say that or do that. We talked about that last night, how James is about 50% female, just based on his inner workings of femalehood. Yeah, we did once or twice. I think there was just some s small little things that we said, eh, I'd probably go this way. James is very open to any, any, any interpretations of line changes, but he also is, you know, there's certain things that he you know, feels very strongly about. One of the actors came through and definitely says, well, I want to change it to this and this. And, and he just said, great, yeah, we'll try that. And, uh, you know, he, he lets him say it and moves on from there because he knows what he wants. He Sometimes I don't wants. let the camera roll during those times, but they don't know that. Yeah. yeah. You definitely don't want to be caught picking your nose on James Stett because he'll, he's probably rolling. Suddenly the character's a nose picker. <laughs> Well, one of the best shots that I love in the film the most, there's a scene where Trudy um, and Maris um, are holding hands, and it's a quiet moment, and James was actually rolling on that. Um, we, were just, it was, we were just in character, taking a minute, and he was rolling on it, and now it's actually one of my favorite shots. He does that a lot. He goes and gets shots when people aren't looking or grabs conversations when people aren't looking, so that, that sometimes makes its way and without us knowing. So to wrap this up, what's next? Uh, we, uh, we, we started shooting a movie set in Manhattan in 1947 called Hot in the Zipper. And it's a screwball comedy. We're filming it in, in five 20-minute takes. And we did the first, the first uh, 20 minutes already. And you're doing a, it's a period piece. I'm presuming the budget's going to have to be higher than 15000 Somewhat. We're actually using the same camera, the Sony EX-1. Uh, but I edited so much on this movie that the, actually the, the catalyst for making that at this time was so that I didn't have to edit. All the editing is done via camera moves, but it's really rat-a-tat, super fast dialogue, and it's about three women in Manhattan who just have all sorts of bisexual adventures. We do? Yes. <laughs> I haven't read the whole thing yet. Yeah, well, you filmed the last scene of it. I mean, wow. 
Awesome. Listen, thank you guys so much for being with us, and thanks for thank joining you. us. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, thanks IndieWire. Thank, thanks to Apple, too. I'd like to thank everybody again. The film is rid of me. Of course, don't forget, we have events happening all week here at the store. All week, and you can check out every single event that's happening at apple.com forward slash retail forward slash Tribeca. And the also available for free app at the App Store and the iTunes right there. You go ahead and search for Tribeca Film Festival app. You'll be able to download that for free. We have events happening all the time. So often, in fact, we have another one happening tonight at 6.30. We'll have the cast and crew of the film, NAR, here as well. So if you're here for that, stick around. It's going to be great. Thank you again. Have a wonderful week.